Okay, I haven't done this in a long time. And you have a lot of Tibetan singing bowls. I do, I have a whole set. I didn't know they came in sets. So they have tonal, they have tonal resonances from deep to higher pitched. Good morning and <laughs> welcome to Ordinary Life, an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church. I am glad you are here and um, I'm going to keep reminding you until next Sunday, through next Sunday. Yes. To purchase, whether you purchase a copy of this book or not, it doesn't matter. I mean, um, I would like for you to, because this is the theology of the future. I'm about through with my second rereading of it. I think I should probably finish that this afternoon or tomorrow. And I decided this week to go onto Amazon and look at reviews of the book. Oh, yeah? Lots and lots of five-star reviews. Oh, yeah? I didn't look at the reviews. This one, John Tucker aims to set us free from the belief paradigm. That's what we've been talking yep. about. <laughs> but the liberated religious that emerge, John is going back and capturing a word that was used Back in the Benedictine era and afterwards about people who entered special orders called religious. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the religious that emerge are not simply irreligious. Instead, we are set free towards something beyond belief where faith and doubt are held in paradox. Mm. I like that. Mm -hmm. So John is going to be with us uh, Tuesday, March the 9th at 7 p.m. in a webinar that is free. However, if you want to attend it, you have got to register. That's what I want to say. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about a few other things. We have the opportunity still to give donations to Ordinary Life online. Um, on our website are donate buttons. If you click the donate buttons, it takes you to a form. In the memo section, write Ordinary Life. And as we've mentioned, the funds that we collect throughout the year get redistributed to programs both of St. Paul's and in the city that are um, serving the poor and underserved communities in and around Houston. And this year we'll probably distribute throughout the year because of COVID, because of everything, <laughs> because of everything. So thanks for your donations. They go to a good cause. Speaking of that, last Sunday it was cold. Was cold, mm -hmm. and now we're sweating because now, the air conditioning the is, is out. Off in this building, it's hot. Yeah. And last Monday, we lost power. At the building? All over the city. Oh, two Mondays ago, right? Oh, was that two yeah. weeks ago? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've had a, a we've gone from winter to summer within the span of 10, 10 days. It's been amazing. <laughs> yeah. So we are in Lent here at St. Paul's, and uh, the second Sunday in Lent. There will be outdoor worship today, they think. The registration for that has been high. Um, take advantage of this time to do something for yourself, like reread Living and Examine Life by Jim Hollis. Um, there is a Bible study that I'm a faculty member for that meets on Monday nights. We're studying the book of Ecclesiastes, which is very Interesting to me, I would not have done this deep dive into Ecclesiastes without doing this. Um, I want to thank uh, John Watson and Tim Leatherwood and um, Olivia Watson and William Budge for making it possible for us to be here like this. I hope this time today contributes to your understanding better who you are, better who your neighbor is, better who sacred mystery is so that we can live the kind of religious life that John Tucker talks about in mm -hmm. this book. So I also want you to know that no matter who you are and no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, whether you are a pajama person having pancakes or a wine and cheese person somewhere in Europe, I'm uh, glad that you are here, no matter who you are. So we have continued our decision mm -hmm. to work our way through the... Um, Lord's Prayer, and there is a line that Holly used last week 
and that we both use frequently. We like it so much. <laughs> the line is, it's not the way because Jesus walked it. Jesus walked it because it is the way. Now, this line is from a book by a Roman Catholic nun whose name is Sarah Grant. Sarah was from Scotland. Mm -hmm. She was motivated for some reason to go to India where she became a Hindu. And she was a nun. She was a nun, yes. she was a Roman Catholic nun. And you can be Christian and Buddhist or Christian and Hindu at the same time. And uh, she wrote a book about her experience. And I attended a very small conference, Sherry and I did, with Christian Wyman. Mm -hmm. um, he wrote My Bright Abyss. Have you read that book? I haven't read it. He's written several things that, um, one that's on my list that I have not gotten to. He's an amazing poet mm. and, mm -hmm. and um, curator of poetry. He was head of the American Poetry Guild or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. Now he teaches at Yale. And uh, he mentioned, oh, by the way, another presenter at this conference was Eugene Peterson. Yeah, Who translates that. the message yeah. that we use a lot. Yeah. And so I, I was close up and personal with both of them That's for wonderful. about five days. It was yeah. an amazing small conference. And in one of his presentations, uh, Christian Wyman mentioned this book by uh, Sarah Grant, and he said, it's the best book on non-dual reality or non-dual mind in the English language. Mm. And I thought, I'm going to get that book. So there's no Wi-Fi connection in the space where we were. So when the, that session was over, I rushed to a place where I could connect to find Wi-Fi. Got on the Amazon website and found out that a copy of that book would cost me a little over $300. And I went, whoa, I don't think so. So I mentioned that to Wyman later and he said, well, just check it out of your local library. And I thought, sure, how likely is that? <laughs> and then I thought of this parable that Jesus told about the pearl of great price. Mm. And if you have this teacher who says, this is the best book I've ever read on this he topic. He needs to make it available to you. <laughs> no, I need to spend whatever it will cost. Oh, I see. It's the pearl of great price. I uh -huh. need to sell everything to get it. But I didn't. On the last night of the conference, I was sitting at dinner. Wyman and I were sitting together and he just turned to me and he said, oh, by the way, I have a copy of that book on PDF. When I get back to Yale, I'll send it to you. Fantastic. So, yeah, uh, this is the f what's on the front page of the PDF. Toward an alternative theology, confessions of a non-dualist Christian. Um, I checked on Amazon and the, the cost of this book has now gone up uh, to between 919 and 987 dollars. I mean, she must just be this little gem that nobody knows about, but is, is again, the pearl of wisdom. Well, truth be told, you can buy a paperback secondhand copy for a whole lot less than that, but I'm going to be like Christian Wyman and hope I do not go to prison for this. But if you would like to have a copy of this book, if you will email me, I will send it to Copyright you. lawyers, please contact Dr. Bill Curley. <laughs> I think the copyright is run out on this book. Yeah. But uh, really, if you would like it, let me know. So Sarah Grant was a Roman Catholic nun. She left Scotland, moved to India, where she could explore what became her lifelong preoccupation, namely the implications of the Hindu experience of non-duality for Christian theological reflection. There are many gems in this book which, as you can tell, was first delivered as a series of lectures. And if you do take the challenge of reading it, I suggest that you read it with a notebook and pen in hand so that you can write paraphrases of what you read in your own words down to help you capture the content of this book a little bit better. It's full of gems. I mm -hmm. mean, really. She, she opens the door into an awareness of how the Eastern thought can inform our Western need for correctness and doctrine and belief and all the kinds of things really that Western Christianity is kind of 
constricted its believers into and that we're trying to get some spaciousness into. So one of the questions that she deals with and one of the questions that Holly and I are dealing with in these ongoing talks is what is the way that Jesus walked? Mm -hmm. Jesus was not a Western Christian. He was a Jewish Middle Eastern mystic in the prophetic tradition. And one of the things I think the way he walked and which I want to know and teach is how do you participate in the consciousness that he had of his understanding of God, which was as an intimate, loving, parental figure. No doubt he came from that Jewish background where the awesomeness of the sacred mystery was part of everyday thinking for, for Jewish thought. But out of his understanding of his relationship to sacred mystery came this incredible freedom mm. and this incredible love and joy that he shared with others in a way that transformed their lives. And I believe, and we began to talk about this last week, that entering into this mystical heart of Jesus, into this mystical understanding of the sacred that's both mysterium tremendum and mysterium fascinosum, it's both overwhelming and alluring at the same time, that that can contribute to our transformation. In John's Gospel, Jesus is quoted as saying, I am the way. Mm -hmm. Now, the way is something you can walk. It's something that gets you to your destination from here to there. Though, as Sarah Grant points out, there's really nowhere to get to because we're already there. We just don't realize that we are. Now, there are multitudes of ways to walk the way. We're talking about prayer. We're going to say some more about that before we're done today. So you can study the way, you can practice the way, that's largely Buddhist Hinduism. You can contemplate the way, that's Christian mysticism, Jewish mysticism, a whole uh, aspect of, of Buddhist and Hindu thought. I personally think that the way involves an unceasing search for union and oneness with this unfathomable mystery that is reality itself. And it's an unceasing search because though we find it, we don't. Hmm. And uh, I'm amazed at going through this study as I have done now for a long time. I'm still finding things I didn't know. I'm still learning things, which makes it exciting and lively for me. It, it, it involves a lifelong quest and though it is absolutely impossible to convey <laughs> adequately in words, non-dual mind is a graceful acceptance mm. that there is a whole other way of knowing than that which can be grasped with the thinking mind. Got that? <laughs> so the church, for all of its positive strengths, experience being twisted out of shape when it got embroiled in all the doctrinal controversies that it has experienced through its history. And when the church went for doctrine and devotion, mystery was largely drained out of it and magic got introduced and they're different. The analogy that John Tucker uses in his book, Zero Theology, is the difference between stained glass and clear glass. Stained glass, uh, I mean clear glass, which allows us to see through, creates the illusion that we've actually seen. Um, whereas stained glass is something we see by, and they're different experiences. Now, Sarah Grant does not denigrate the value of intellectual pursuit. As a matter of fact, in one of the lines in the book, she writes, the more we give ourselves in theological study, the more God gives of himself in contemplative prayer. So when it comes to a path to walk, what I want for myself and what I want to offer in the teachings that we do here is a developing and growing in an, in an integrity of mind and heart 
that leads us to acknowledge truth wherever we find it and to have the willingness and the courage to follow it wherever it leads, which is likely going to be out of the confines of our current understanding and our current way of seeing, hmm. which makes it exciting and scary at the same time. So the goal of walking this non-dual path is not to conceptually know sacred mystery. That's impossible. The goal is to experience sacred mystery that is beyond all conceptual knowledge. That is, we come to know God as something that is unknowable. Another non-dual way of putting it. So all of this is to introduce us to the phrase in the Lord's Prayer that goes... Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Or, as Neil Douglas Klotz has it, is this working? Yeah. Here we go. <clears throat> Soften the ground of my being and carve out a space within me where your presence can, can abide. So mm. look at those two lines together. Mm. One is a translation of the other. They're mirror images of each other. In so many ways. Huh? In so many ways, they're mirror images. I'll talk about that. Yeah. So what does it mean in the living of our lives to hallow God's name? And if we walk that path, what does walking that path look like? There's a couple of things as you were talking that I was thinking about, Bill. Um, you know, one is, that, you know, first of all, we have a lot of problems in this world. We have a lot of problems in this country. We have a lot of problems in this city. Martin Luther King defined the sort of triple evils of society as racism, poverty, and war. And, um, you know, the, there are a lot of ways to address each of those. We need economic solutions. We need environmental solutions. But I think overall, we need a spiritual solution. And this is what we're trying to reckon with, is what are some of the spiritual solutions or spiritual ways, if you will, of addressing some of these deeply controversial, deeply divisive uh, issues in society. When you first texted me, I think I mentioned this to you, the title for this week's class, I read it as Between the Trivial and the Infinite. <laughs> and I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. We got a large span to cover <laughs> in 45 minutes. But you know, but then when I reread it, of course, I got infantile, but it had already been reshaped in my mind because actually between the trivial and the infantile, there is infinite space. We have an infinity of paths, an infinity of expansion available to us if we can sort of breathe into that space between. If we do the work of growing up, of developing an adult spirituality, which Bill has talked to us about for years and years, and if we learn to take personal responsibility for our lives, there is room for infinite discovery of mystery, of self, and of others. And between the trivial and the infantile is actually where we find freedom. With an infantile worldview, you'll get into this a little later too, we expect to be rescued. We depend on the Jesus of personal salvation rather than the Jesus of eternal mystery, rather than the Jesus of the way. We look to God as dammer or rescuer. We get caught up in what God's will for our personal lives is, anxious about doing it right to accommodate this kind of three-tiered universe instead of taking a serious look about how to shape the path which we are on in the world. Jesus isn't there to hold our hands, but to light the path of courageous love. We should not infantilize Jesus in this work either. On, this, on our podcast this week, I read this prayer or poem by Padre Gautuma, an Irish poet. And he was, uh, he's an Irish Catholic, actually, but he was not able to be a man of the cloth because he's homosexual and was not able to serve openly in the church. But he continues to do spiritual work in community through healing and conflict resolution. He founded or helped found or helped lead something called the Corimila Community which is one of Ireland's longest established peace and reconciliation organizations. So the poem or prayer goes like this. Jesus, you sometimes left so that people could face themselves. May we face ourselves in the wilderness and the world and recognize the forces that drive us so that they do not always drive us. Amen. 
such a simple poem, and, and actually, to me, I am freed in the space when I can approach prayers like the Lord's Prayer, like a poem, rather than as a literal exchange between myself and God or myself and Jesus. A couple of things about this poem that really stood out to me. Number one, Jesus leaves us to face ourselves. This is the fundamental message of the Christ story. We must go inward to authentically participate outward. There's that tension again, the paradox. We come to know mystery by going inward, and this process changes how we engage with the world. This relationship between our outer world and the inner world is continuous and bi-directional. It's hallowed space in any kind of living system. So our spiritual lives, as well as our actual physical material lives, um, require a semi-permeable membrane. So such a membrane regulates the passage of nutrients between the interior and exterior through a process called osmosis. Most of us learned about osmosis in maybe eighth grade science, I'm, I don't know. But this is, how, this is how systems stay alive, by letting in the good and keeping out the harmful. Our bodies have, for example, an osmotic relationship with the planet. I'm not sure if osmotic is a word, but I made it one. Okay. <laughs> um, And number two, the placement of the word selves. It is a line unto itself in this poem. I just started reading um, a little book called Encounter with the Self by Edward Edinger. And he, I love the serendipity. He uses this term mysterium tremendum very early in the book. It's a Jungian commentary on William Blake's etchings of the book of Job. I'm not going into the book of Job today, but briefly stated, the struggles that Job undergoes represent the individual ego's decisive encounter with the self or this greater mystery or personality. I love Edward Edinger's I know you do. Yeah, I I I, I think it's really accessible, but also really beautifully done. When we encounter ourselves, we encounter infinite mystery. Awareness of the self, so capital S, true self, is central to the process of love as a practice of freedom. And the self, Edward Edinger says, is not distinct from the God image. And this encounter is what he calls, or what is called, the mysterium tremendum, the tremendous mystery. If we approach prayer, this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, like poetry, we encounter that mystery. There's, um, I bet you were trained in this model too. There's a medical and psychological model of development called the biopsychosocial model. Did mm-hmm. you learn this when you were in school or was it, was it developed later? Post- in school, okay. in graduate school. Yeah, yeah. me too. And, uh, and it, it's a model of disease which is, and it assesses our individual well-being based on biology, psychology, and, social, and our social surroundings. An individual's social surroundings and groupings, family, community, church, culture, give us our first taste of what we could call participation mystique. So this model I, I find to be more holistic than some, so it's not just trying to operate on the separate aspects of the body or the mind or the, or the being, it's trying to pull the, the whole narrative together. But I, be, I believe it's still incomplete. A larger vision of the individual would include our relationship to the planet and our relationship to the cosmos. So we might have an ecological layer of development and a cosmological layer of development. So that word becomes a lot longer, biopsychosocial eco-cosmo <laughs> development. Um, we sh- when we shrink back into our small self, so this can happen because it is overwhelming to encounter our infinite self. We shrink back because of that overwhelm. And it's as the poet um, who wrote Carl Sagan expressed that I mentioned last week, God, I need to believe you created me. We are so small down here. We shrink back into our infantile self because of the overwhelm of feeling part of something infinite. It's important to be grounded in all these layers of the self, the bio, psychosocial, the eco, and the cosmo. But we also need to lean on that permeable membrane between the self and us, the self and everything and everyone else. That's the third point I want to make about Padrigo Tuama's poem, and that's the placement and the emphasis of us. The last word of the poem is us. 
Individuation is an important milestone. My kids, in order to thrive in the world, every day, every segment of life, need to be on this trajectory of experiencing themselves ever more capable, ever more independent from me as they get older. Um, I think of my friend Brooke Summers Perry has this beautiful diagram of like, as kids get more independent, the need for us goes down. At first, the need for us is huge, and then we do this exchange. <laughs> um, so I, as their parent, have to learn to be solid enough in myself to allow this individuation to happen, to not take it personally as they push away, even though that is hard. <laughs> Ultimately, I need to be willing to receive feedback as to how I hindered or helped their process. So we're born from this unified whole. The womb is that, the universe is that. I love this idea that the universe contains us. The word is actually in the word. We must differentiate from that whole in order to know ourselves so that we can come back to it and participate more authentically. If we can learn to face ourselves, which is what Padre Gotuma says, that's why Jesus left us, then we can learn to better serve the collective us. We return to us with a fuller sense of ourselves. We're living what John Tucker calls the authentic or liberated religious life. We're not dependent on infantile beliefs in heaven or hell, in salvation or damnation. We can more clearly see that everything in this whole beautiful, mad world is bound up with each other. That our liberation from anxious thinking, from infantile thinking, is embodying inner being, which is where we started this whole series almost a year ago. In inner being, we can see everything and everyone as hallowed. So I want to be clear, um, back up just a little bit. Um, mm -hmm. My training <clears throat> really was on the cusp of the model that you described mm, yeah. coming into being. Because up until then, we were taught really a very male-oriented, individual-oriented, patriarchal yes. thing. And, and society was organized around that model. So, for example, let's suppose you have a male mm -hmm. who works for Acme Corporation and he's working his way up the ladder in, in the corporate world. Mm -hmm. The corporate structure thought nothing about moving that employee from one city to another every couple of years, never thinking the impact that that had on the system that was around For sure. that person. Yeah. This, his kids, their development, their connection with others in school, the social groups that they made or that his, his wife might have made. But it was very oriented in that direction. Well, think also, you know, all way back to um, times of enslavement. Families were sold apart from one another without a second thought about what that did to child development, what that did to family development, what that did to personal spiritual ego and uh, self-development. How about separating kids from their parents right, at the border? Right, at the border right now. Right so, now. Yeah. So we'll pay a price for that. We because are. Because we don't think holistically. <laughs> so that yeah. for, for me, what really helped bring this us into view was Buddhism mm -hmm. and my encounter with Thich Nhat Hanh. Because he began to say, just you know, you see the whole world on a piece of paper. That's right. And you see that your brother or sister is the person you're looking at that was so, so powerful. Well, we could spend a lot of time talking about that. Maybe <laughs> you should. I said last week that I was a better theologian when I was eight than I am now, and there's a reason for that. We come in the world connected to um, our full being. If we are lucky enough to be born in a system mm -hmm. that can provide us nurture and support and the vast majority of children are not born in that we just sort of face that right off the bat years ago i heard parker palmer mm. the quaker spiritual teacher tell a story and it, it sounds like one of those stories that needs to be preceded with the line i don't know if this really happened or not but i know it's true <laughs> and here's the story there was this three-year-old girl. She was the firstborn in her family. 
But now her mother is pregnant again, and the little girl is very excited about having a new brother or sister. And <clears throat> within a few hours of the parents having brought home the new baby boy after birth from the hospital, this little three-year-old girl makes a request. She wanted to be alone with her new brother in his room with the door shut. Now, this insistence of being in the room alone with her new ba baby brother with the door shut sort of raised some anxiety with the parents, but they had one of these baby monitors in the room that um, my kids had when their children were born so that you could hear what was happening in the baby's room, but you didn't have to be there. So they agreed to allow this to happen, and they brought the baby home, put the baby in the crib, the little girl went in the door, in the room, shut the door, and they could hear her walking over to the crib. And then they heard her say to her three-day-old brother, tell me about God. I've almost forgotten. So we hmm. come from God, and we go to God, but in the process of doing a thing we call growing up, we lose sight of this. Sandra Matry talks about this beautifully in her book, The Spiritual Dimension of the Enneagram, where we fall away from our essential self. As a matter of fact, the, art of the chapter from that book is on the Ordinary Life website under resources if you want to read it. We fall away from our e essential self. Life is hard, <laughs> and, and the cost of daily life and living are corrosive, and we make choices and commitments that carry cost we didn't know about when we made those choices and commitments. And even so, there is still something within us that knows what is right for us and what is wrong for us. Um, Jim Hollis has in his book, Living the Examined Life, he says that in workshops, he will ask participants to write down where in life you're stuck. And he says, nobody ever raises their hand and says, what do you mean? Because people yeah, know. Right. We know. We know where we're stuck. We know what work we need to yeah. do. But these, these things easily get overruled by what call, Paul in the New Testament calls the principalities and the powers of the world. And I read that to mean they get overruled by our need to fit in, our need to be liked, our need for survival, um, all, all of those things. And so we anesthetize ourselves to the difficulties we encounter in, quote, growing up. That we do that is understandable. The problem is that our efforts to avoid only bring about more inauthenticity and more distance from our true selves. So we have given this talk today the title, and I'll tell you why before we're done, <laughs> of walking the path between the trivial and, and the, the infantile. Because more often than not, our effort to avoid the inevitable suffering that is part of being human, pulls us into one of these two arenas. I can't tell you how many times over the years um, as a counselor, or sometimes just in ordinary conversation with people, somebody will say to me something like, you know, I know I should, whatever it is, or I know I shouldn't, but <laughs> fill that out. How is it that we can know and not do. It's because we're afraid. Of course, we all are. I think one of the things I first learned from uh, one of my first spiritual teachers was that if you could put everybody in a room, give them truth serum, and have them say the one thing that's true about themselves at the moment, it's that we're afraid. We're afraid about all sorts of things. We're afraid about our, our kids, the future, just all sorts of things. And I think this is one of the reasons that the most frequent phrase in the Hebrew and Christian scripture is fear not, mm. be not afraid. And one of the things that matters most in walking the path that Jesus walked is not to be governed by fear. We cannot not be afraid, but we can live not ruled by the fear that is present in my lives. 
Fear does not have to call the shots. The path we're called to walk is one of living with the reality of our true selves. To step into this task of becoming and being who we truly are is challenging. It's difficult, but it is what we are called to do. For those people who wonder, does God have a meaning for me in life? Yes. (laughs) To survive is first. If you're in that part of the economic uh, part of the world where survival is a key daily issue and food insecurity is what you live with all the time, then survival is what you're called to do. If you're lucky enough to have reached the hierarchy of needs that Maslow talks about where you can even anticipate self-actualization, that's what you're called to do. That's your purpose. That's your calling. There is a line which I'm sure you've heard No one on their deathbed ever wished they'd spent more time at the office. Well, if we are conscious when in that position, how will we we feel about our time here if we have not been here as ourselves? The task of being who we really are, it is so simple. (laughs) And it is so difficult. It is so profound but it is your gift to the world. What could be more important? And I thank God for people across the ages who have risen as prophetic voices to call us back to this path. Like Sarah Grant, like John Tucker, like Jesus, like Thomas Merton, who Mm -hmm. gave us the phrase true self to start with. So this prayer that we're using as a guide, the Lord's Prayer, grew out of that community that grew up around Jesus' life and teaching. It constituted, can I say it? Yeah, I do it. I mean, I don't think we've heard it before. It constituted a daily practice (laughs) that they used to remind themselves the path they intended to walk. O cosmic birther of all radiance and vibration, soften the ground of my being and carve out a space in me where your presence can abide. Our work is to align ourselves with this presence, with this sacred mystery, with this ground of being, call it what you will, that helps us stay on this path. When you told the story about the little girl and her three-day-old baby brother, um, I remember a story I was told, and it's one of these things I don't remember consciously, but I've been told it enough that it just feels true. When I was brought home from the hospital, my sister sat on me. (laughs) I was wrapped in her blanket. She wanted to get rid of you. She did. She was pretty mad about me having her blanket. I hope you gave it back to her. I don't know that I had that ability. (laughs) One of us was going to be cold. Anyhow, um, I don't think that this path toward self, toward sacred mystery, and I say toward, we're already there. It's just waking up to it. So when I say toward, it makes it sound like it's out there and we're on it. In a way, it does feel like that because these things feel hard, but... We're also already here. Anyway, I don't think this is available to us without taking love very seriously. Bell Hooks is one of my favorite scholars and activists and writers. She often writes about how she really wishes that love were a serious academic issue, that we, that we talked about it in spaces of society, talked about it in spaces of analysis, because we think of love as being so fluffy but she really believes that it deserves a prominent space in any dialogue. So it's integral, she says, to both justice and liberation. And it also leads to a greater understanding of the self, us, and sacred mystery, because love, like God, is trans-rational. I love this quote from her. If we remain unable to imagine a world where love can be recognized as a unifying principle that can lead us to seek and use power wisely, then we will remain wedded to a culture of domination that requires us to choose power over love.
Love is not a feeling, but an ability. It's something we can practice, like our daily spiritual practice. It can be awakened or threatened, but the potential for it is always inside. It is also a responsibility. So meaning it's something in this quote that we need to choose power or love. And our responsibility is to choose the kind of love that can lead to wisdom and power, using power wisely, I should say. We are born, I think, primed for attachment. We, they say that in the first couple hours of life, based on that first interaction with a caregiver or, or someone who's touching you, that your neurons are firing at such a rapid pace, your brain cells are already developing toward attachment and touch. They say that if you leave a human baby on the tummy of a mommy when, um, just after birth, that the baby will make its way up to the breast to mm. eat, and that that's when like, the most neurons are going off. I didn't try it, but I think that's fascinating. Um, anyway, I, I, so we're born for this kind of desire for attachment and love. And even if we have not been loved properly or our parents, um, by our parents or by consequent inti- intimate relationships, the ability to learn it is always there. Love is like what Aristotle called potentiality. As we practice it, it becomes more expansive actuality. He had this polarity between potentiality in actuality, everything has latent potential. What we do is how it becomes actualized. So I'll take a kind of apophatic approach. Love is not shame. Love is not domination. It is not injustice. And it does not see another as other. Bell Hook says that love has the qualities of care, knowledge, commitment, responsibility, respect, and trust. It's not something that becomes whole all at once, but it's a process. It's a choice we make every single day. One of the wisest things that someone said to me about marriage was it's waking up and saying, I do, over and over and over again. And this is true in how we show up in love in the world. So perhaps it's fair to say that love is an evolution that helps us commune with the sacred. When we love someone or pursue something like a vocation or a profession with the qualities listed here, that which receive our love also becomes hallowed. I love the contrast, but also the compatibility of these two lines or interpretations of the Lord's Prayer side by side. I almost think they become their own prayer. Hallowed be thy name, outward praise and admiration, soften the ground of my being, inward contemplation. Both are necessary to love well. When we trivialize something, minimize it or over-intellectualize it, we cannot truly love. My sister used to say that I got into my Harvard voice when I didn't really want to connect with how I felt about something. She said I went to Harvard and lost my emotions. But for sure, I have a tendency to go deep into my intellect when I feel insecure or threatened. As a child, I was known to be very emotional. I don't know who first called me this, but mercurial was a word that was used often for me. And and I got teased for it a lot by almost everyone in my immediate life. I got teased for being too sensitive. I was often told, you're so cute when you're crying. So there was a very like, I don't think anyone really knew what to do with my deep emotions. Um, I probably didn't know what to do with them. And I don't think anyone meant to do harm. But the net effect is that I kind of went in the other direction. I, I went away from my heart and into my head. This has its benefits. It allows me to take my studies seriously, to do something like a PhD, to write these talks every week. We have to use our mind. We have to use our brain. Of course, had I stayed as emotional as I was as a child, I would, not, I would now be perceived as infantile. But trending too far into my intellect isn't helpful either. You know, they say that the longest distance between two points is um, between the heart and the head, right? We lost that slide. We're out of order. That's all right. Um, anyways, I had a graphic about that. But the, so this, the longest path that we are on is between the head and the heart. And I think I'm still on that path. <laughs> and, and to me, the, the hope is to find the in-between, 
the, the soft ground of our being between the head and the heart. That's wisdom. This is how we turn um, thoughts into meaningful, compassionate action. This is how we understand and transform our social reality. Martin Luther King Jr. had the view of the beloved community, which he learned from Howard Thurman, from Gandhi, from others who walked in the way. To achieve this requires us to have a strong sense of self, of personhood, but to also understand that our personhood is always informed by and even made better when it exists in community. This fragmented kind of postmodern condition that we are currently in can only be overcome if we take both our personhood and our belonging very seriously. This is what is referred to as agape love. We have have a few slides in between, but that's all right. (laughs) Um, Agape love, I have this as a quote. Do you think we should? I'll just read it. Doesn't matter. Agape love is that which transcends love of self, family, tribe, race, class, or nation. It is rooted in the philosophical vision of the organic interconnectedness of all of life. That's a quote from Robert E. Burt, who's an MLK scholar. I think our task is to become agape philosophers. So you're a six on the Enneagram. I'm a counterphobic six. And that means lots (laughs) of passion and lots of things that might scare other people. Uh, But you have a strong five wing. Mm-hmm. So you can drill down and become an expert in your studies and your writings here and other things. So that's good. Yeah. That's good. So I have not yet um, said why I chose the words trivial and infantilized for our title. And I want to attempt to do so now because I think what we set up to now kind of lays a foundation for it. Very early on, all of us are given a frame through which to look at ourselves and the world and our place in the world. And a commitment to walk the path that Jesus walked involves a willingness to step out of that frame. To step out of the frame of understanding who we think we are and our place in the world and the, the boundaries that we are put around us or have put around us. Now, I don't know what your story is. I know Holly's to some extent. I know others are people in this room. But as a child, I was given a quite restrictive religious frame through which to look at those three things, myself, the world, and my place in the world. And I want to be clear that in many, many, many ways that frame has benefited me. I'm very, very grateful for it. What has benefited me even more Mm. is the willingness to step outside of that frame. And it scared the bejabbers out of some of the people who gave me the original frame in the first place. Right now in this country as well as in other places in the world, the religions that are growing, even thriving, are based on two frames which are actually diminishing people's perspectives. On the one hand, there is the fundamentalism uh, that we all are experiencing all around us. In Sarah Grant's book, she says that fundamentalism is a fear against widening horizons, against stepping outside of that frame. In our time, it's gotten mixed up with right-wing politics and conspiracy theories, and the data I am reading says that this movement is growing. We now have a fundamentalist movement in the United States called Christian Mm -hmm. nationalism. Um, It's a movement that wants to go backwards and to reconstitute the world by an old set of values and authorities. And it is a movement that is not driven by religious experience, but by anxiety. Is it not lost? Is it not lost 
on people that making a golden statue is kind of what happened when Moses went on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments? Mm. Where's the Moses of our time? Mm. So this is the infantile response. Fundamentalism is the infantile way to walk. Tell me what to do. Tell me what to believe. Make the world safe for me. Let's go back to a golden age. Keep those different people from those people different from me out and so forth. Now on the other side of this path we are attempting to walk, within organized religious movement, there's a movement that has welded itself to the religion of our culture, which is consumerism. And this is known as the prosperity gospel. And here's the message of the prosperity gospel. If you get right with God, and I'm going to tell you how to do that <laughs> for a fee, then you will have happiness, prosperity, and peace will come to you. This is a very seductive message. I, this is not in my notes, but I read somewhere that one of the reasons that so many people support these televangelists who have jet airplanes like I'm getting? Yeah, like yours. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. not, not like I, I don't have it yet, but it's coming. It's because their belief is that I can have one of those two. Right. If I just, if I am in this same camp, then I'm going to be blessed with these same kind Proximity, of... Proximity, prosperity. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's one response. And the other is outside of organized Christianity, and it's reflected in a wide variety of pop, seemingly quasi-religious movements that seem to be guaranteed if you will only follow this very simple 30-day plan of learning how to speak a language, eating to lose weight, meditation, yoga. I'm not against any of these things, but you're not going to learn how to speak a foreign language fluently in 30 days. It's not going to happen. Neither one of these things offers substance. Uh, one um, infantilizes people by offering a, a powerful parental figure to care for them, and the other evokes guilt, feelings of inadequacy, and unworthiness. One offers an untroubled path that doesn't tell it like it is. And that telling it like it is, is namely life is hard and it involves suffering. And we try to protect ourselves from suffering. And that's what John Tucker's book is all about, that existential grief that we are all trying to sidestep. And in between these two perversions, there are all sorts of things that are distracting us from this path of walking toward absolute or with an awareness of absolute grief. There are all sorts of narcotics. There are more TV channels than you can watch in your lifetime. There are precious devices that we stay focused on all the time and on and on. So we have, kind of hesitant to say this. Yeah. <laughs> we have a daily spiritual practice in our effort to be exposed to the need to repeatedly call us back to the need to reframe our understanding of who we are, what our place is in the world, and how we are to live our lives in the world. Yeah. And I'm sorry if I messed up the slides. That's all right. I think I forgot to notice, too. You know, so... I, we both read the Progressing Spirit blog this week, and I liked that word transrational that he used. That, and what we are talking about is indeed transrational, but it's not irrational. Here's my slide on the distance between the head and the heart. <laughs> and I think what I see there is pulling them together. Let's pull them together. Um, there's your my quote. quote on agape love. <laughs> Just want you all to see the beautiful slides. Anyhow, so we're talking about something that is transrational. In other words, it crosses the membrane between rational and irrational, but it is still, we want it to make sense. 
So let's think about this from a scientific perspective. And some of this is adapted from that Progressing Spirit blog written by the Reverend Dr. Robin R. Myers. Let's think about string theory. So string theory is one of the most fascinating but unprovable ideas we have. But we know something is at work in the universe to keep it tethered to itself. We could call it gravity. We can call it dark matter. And at the heart of string theory is the idea that at some fundamental level, all of the different forces, particles, interactions, and manifestations of reality are tied together as part of the same framework. This is the best unified theory of everything that we had or have. Could we conceive then of God as the string itself as opposed to the polar of strings? Hmm. The second thing we have is chaos theory. While string theory is theoretical, chaos theory seeks to explain the physical relationship between everything. We know this commonly as the butterfly effect, in which no variables are too small to cause immense change in complex systems. What if what we do plays out in infinite and comprehensive ways, rippling across what we might call this luminous web of existence for good or for ill. The third scientific theory we have, which we need to apply to our spiritual lives, is evolutionary theory. The process by which organisms and ecosystems change over time. So can we imagine that God, like us, like everything, is also in evolution? Not this Aristotelian idea of the unmoved mover in the sky, or the clockmaker, that we are in a symbiotic, semi-permeable membrane relationship with change. So soften the ground of our being. Relax into that entangled web of existence and know that everything that we do matters, that how we show up in the world, whether we choose to love, whether we choose indifference, whether we choose to trivialize, it all matters. But choosing love, choosing to know the true self, is the most important task that we can do. So one of the reasons that we are offering these particular teachings, I hope you remember that, we're trying to navigate this territory between not only the no longer and the not yet, but this time of incredible distrust and divisiveness that's in our country. And so we want to enhance the ability that we all have to find meaning and peace in the midst of this chaos. It's real to say, as spiritual teachers do, that we're all one. It's also real and true to say that tribal loyalties are destroying us. Those things are true. They're destroying us, they're destroying the foundations of democracy, they're destroying our planet. At the moment, one of the ways we're attempting to do this by, is by getting us all to rethink what we understand prayer is. What is prayer? How do we pray? And hopefully going through the Lord's Prayer as we are will contribute to some answers for you. Over and over and over I have said God is not out there. I fear, however, that the very word prayer and our exposure to the practice of praying over our lifetimes, whether by someone else or ourselves, makes us have the reflexive reaction of thinking out there of some external being whom we're asking to come be with us in some way, usually to rescue us or someone we love. The biggest error people can make about having a spiritual practice is that they can force something to happen. The ego cannot cook up a mystical experience. <laughs> so I want to offer you a definition of prayer that might be helpful. Prayer is that which we habitually enter into with our whole heart, in which we assume that inner stance that offers the least resistance to our being overtaken by the experience of the sacred mystery, which we are powerless by our own efforts to obtain. Prayer is that which we habitually enter into with our whole heart, in which we assume the inner stance that offers the least resistance to our being overtaken 
by the experience of sacred mystery which we are powerless by our own efforts to obtain. I promise you that if you do this on a regular basis, you'll look back six months from now and see a shift <laughs> that has taken place in your heart. There's so much good news about this. For one thing, we never run out of the opportunity to learn and grow. We can do this practice till we die. There's agenda all around us that we can use. Someone once asked me, do I have to have a daily spiritual practice? And the answer is, of course not. You don't. If you want to stay on the surface until the last minute or until the doctor says there's nothing more we can do for you, you don't need a spiritual practice. But if you want to claim and live out the power of your true identity, if you want to live an authentic, useful spiritual life, then a daily spiritual practice is a necessity. Kabir, the mystic poet whom we both love, wrote, I felt in need of a great pilgrimage, so I sat for three days, and God came to me. Hmm. Give it a shot. No matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and we will see you here next week. Sure will.